was a fantastic time in phylogenetics at the time. You know, they'd just come up with transgenesis. Alan Spradling had just found ways of making these transgenes. Uh, then there was genome walking, Welcome Bender, and people like that. So it was just, it was just mind-boggling what they could do with, with cloning and manipulating the genome. And the questions, and of course, the Nusslein Vorlad and Wieschat screen had thrown up all these amazing genes. So the questions were exciting and the tools were exciting. Biologist Maria Lepton was appointed to be the fifth EMBO director in 2009 and has been leading the organization since January 2010. This fall, Maria succeeded Jean-Pierre Bourguignon as president of the European Research Council. In this first episode of a two-part podcast, we discuss with Maria her career, her research in immunology and developmental biology, and some of the EMBO projects and initiatives she implemented. We also asked Maria which were the most interesting scientific questions that she would leave unanswered as she winds down her two labs to take over the presidency of the ERC. Welcome to the EMBO podcast. Maria had not set out to be a scientist when going to university. She was initially training to be a teacher. I liked maths and I liked biology, so I enjoyed doing that. Turns out I wasn't as great as math, at maths as I thought. But what had happened was that I did a course on immunology at Heidelberg University that was taught by two people who'd come up from the... Um, Basel Institute of Immunology. So they were pure researchers working in a pure research institute. But they taught this course over, I don't know, three weeks, six weeks. That was really intense where we would, you know, stay in the lab until eight or ten at night and do experiments. And as far as I remember, there was always also beer and wine and stuff and lots of going to the pub. So it was both socially and scientifically very exciting. It was absolute forefront of research kind of stuff we were doing there. It was taught by Fritz Melchers and Jan Andersson, like I say, who came up from the Basel Institute. And at the end of the course, they asked whether somebody else, whether somebody wanted to do a second tier course of this the year after, you know, sort of advanced. And a bunch of people signed up. This would be at the university or in Basel? No, no, this was at the university. This was at the university. They were going to come back, teach another course, but for you know, more advanced. Um, and so uh, I think three people only signed up, but they said they'd come and do it, whether they were going to run it in parallel to the basic course. I don't know. I don't know what their plan was, but three people signed up. But then two people dropped out, and so it was only me left. And so I guess they figured they weren't going to come to teach one student. So instead, they decided I should just go into a lab at the DKFZ, so the Cancer Research Center at the time, which had a very strong uh, immunology unit. So that's what I did. And, you know, nowadays it's quite normal for undergraduates to spend time in labs, but at the time it wasn't. So it was really amazing. So I spent three weeks in a real lab doing real lab research. It was a sort of phage plaque assay of some kind. I actually can't remember. It was phage genetics, which was great fun. So that was my first taste of actual lab work. The year before was already actual science. And um, Fritz had always asked me whether I didn't want to sort of, did I really want to become a teacher and or did I want to, 
you know, had I ever considered becoming a research scientist, I said, nah, no, you know, I'm going to do this. I was having a good life. I was enjoying life and, you know, it was fine. But when I got my degree, I suddenly thought, okay, now I'm going to have to start going to school for the actual teacher training, because at the time that was completely separate. You did your degrees. It was pure, it was pure maths and pure biology. How many years? Four. Four years. Yeah. Four or five, you know, four, and then you have to do your thesis project and, uh, and, and exams. So I think it was five years altogether. But then you go into school and do the sort of vocational part where you have to be, uh, you know, trainee teacher. And I thought, oh, my God, every morning, get up early, go to school, teach the children. In the afternoon, correct their essays, correct their you know, mass homework, uh, set tests, and day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for 40 years. I just couldn't see myself doing that. But this was all in your head. You didn't go into the classroom to do anything? No. Okay. No. I called, I, I then called Fritz and said, look, you kept encouraging me to go into science. Would coming to Basel be an option? And so, you know, he sorted it out and thought about it. it. It was not natural. It seems that this would be a normal thing, but the Basel Institute uh, was really a pure research institute, not a training institute at all. So there were almost no other students there. There were two or three when I arrived. So he had to sort out whether he'd be allowed to take on a student and did. And well, the rest was research science then. I remember calling the ministry because I wasn't sure I wanted to go into science, still not. And so I wanted to know, let to keep a back door open and ask, you know, well, what if I come back in four years' time? Will you still have me as a trainee teacher? And they sort of reassured me. And so, of course, I never went back. Ah, but there was a parachute. There was a parachute, yes, yes. Was it easy to get a PhD fellowship as, as someone who was a trainee they teacher? Paid. They paid, they paid. Oh, they Rosh, being Rosh, Rosh paid, yes. Ah, yes, those yes. were the days. Those were the days, and they paid well. I was always embarrassed about how well and didn't tell anyone else. Even though it was arguably the world's leading immunology research center at the time, Hosh's Basel Institute of Immunology did not exactly host a thriving graduate student community. There were three of us, and the rest were in my view, all stellar scientists. And as far as I could say, they all published papers all the time and did experiments that yielded wonderful results every single day. And I was the only one who didn't. So it was a tough time. But that's that's how I got into science. And you stuck it out. And it was a tough time in the beginning because Actually, you... in the beginning, it wasn't a tough time. It was only just fun until I realized that, you know, doing research is not sitting down and thinking hard and doing an experiment one day and getting a fantastic result next day and then comparing it against your hypothesis and then on the third day do you do yet another experiment it's just not like that i had no idea how hard and frustrating it could be and takes a while to find that out because it takes a while to recognize you're failing yes that was tough i once told a friend of mine that i don't think anything would prepare somebody as poorly for a life in science as having a phd where every experiment worked on mm. the first try mm. I think they would just snap. No, <laughs> I, I've seen people do that. Yeah. Actually, as PhDs, 
come in from you know top U.S. institutions with fantastic pedigree of having done projects in labs and then doing a PhD and something not working. They'd never learned how to deal with failure. It's quite amazing to see them sort of crumble. No, I did learn that. I did learn that. In a, in an interview you gave to Disease Models and Mechanisms, you said that when you visited the LMB you absolutely did not want to work with Michael Wilcox. And then what happened? Well, I did not say I did not want to work with Michael Wilcox. I loved Mike, you know, as a human being from day one, which is why I went there, one reason. I did not want to work with monoclonal antibodies ever again. But what he just done is he's been using monoclonals to study developmental biology and to study cell surface antigens. And so there, you know, that was the project. They existed. I didn't have to make new ones. I didn't have to characterize them. They were just a tool. But anyway, it was sort of not what I'd assumed. I just liked the lab. I liked the project. I liked his mindset, the other people in the lab. I loved Cambridge. It was, you know, I spent three days there. I got a sunburn, you know. It was in Cambridge? In Cambridge, right. In Cambridge, United Kingdom of Great Britain yes. and Northern Ireland. Yes, exactly, exactly. Gloomy, gloomy weather Cambridge, but those three days. So anyway, it was just, you know, it was a total gut reaction. And of all the offers I got, I chose the one that had you shown me on paper beforehand, I would have said no way. Why Why the switch to fly developmental biology? What was the main attraction? Well, it was a fantastic time in fly genetics at the time. You know, they'd just come up with transgenesis. Alan Spradling had just found ways of making these transgenes. Uh, then there was genome walking, Welcome Bender, and people like that. So it was just uh, it was just mind-boggling what they could do with with cloning and manipulating the genome. And the questions, and of course, the Nusslein-Vorlauten Wieschat screen had thrown up all these amazing genes. So the questions were exciting, and the tools were exciting. That was one reason, but it wasn't direct. That was one option. I'd actually. What I'd done is I spent um, sort of two weeks in the library reading every abstract in sort of a year's worth of cell and nature and science or something. Yeah, some of these, maybe I was sort of, no, I didn't read JXMED because I knew I wanted no longer to stay in that field. I can tell you about that at some other point. So I just sort of said, no, 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 no. You know, some fields didn't interest me, others did. Then I started looking more closely and then... I just applied to a whole lot of people. It was in transcription. Um, then people like Pete Borst, who, who I just thought had a fantastic system. I may have heard him at a talk mm. somewhere. So I just looked at a bunch of people. And, but Drosophila was in there. But it was Peter Lawrence and David Ishorowitz in the UK. Neither of them had a space in the lab. Um, but Peter Lawrence says, you know, down the hall from my lab is, is Mike Wilcox. And he's got an interesting project and he could probably take someone on, interview with him. So that's how it happened. It was still a really, a really, really, really exciting time in transcription in, in emphasize, no? Because oh, this is Wally Schaffner and all yeah, yeah. this. Oh, no, fantastic. The system you knew how to yes. handle was, yes. was yeah. where we get enhancers yeah. and, and yes. so forth. And yeah. You'd but had it with would, tissue I'd, culture? I'd had enough. I'd just had enough. Also, Fritz had, um, you know, he came from chemistry and he had very clear ideas about, you know, defined conditions, defined culture media. Uh, and so he was working in these, you know, only very minimal nutritional systems, medium systems, which was very hard to handle. And 
lots of others were using, you know, 20% fetal calf serum and, and huge cell densities. And I wasn't allowed to do that, even though it was much easier to grow cells like that. Our lab wasn't allowed to do that because we wanted to dissect things in known conditions. It was just so hard. <laughs> I was like, I don't want that anymore. I mean, I totally appreciate it, but it was hard. And then everybody else not being held to those standards was exhausting. Not bad. I fully, fully subscribed to what he did. But exhausting. But I needed to breathe. And so that was, what, four or five years breathing in Cambridge, the the air of fly genetics and yes. fly molecular biology. Yeah. And then you mentioned in a few places that you felt that it was time for your time in America. And well, you know, this was still the BTA time, been to America, and it was sort of the promised land. So, of course, I, and, and, you know, most of my friends at the LB were American. It was also for the American molecular biologist been to the LMB time. So there were still lots of postdocs, US postdocs. And all my friends, I think almost without, no, not without exception, but huge majority were from the US. And, you know, everybody else was going back to the US. So I thought that's where I wanted to go too. So that was your next plan? That was my next plan. That didn't work out, yes. But you did end up going for a very brief period. Yes, lovely. That was wonderful. I basically, so, I mean, as you know, I then was offered a position at the Max Planck Institute in Tübingen, which was, of course, at the time, the absolute mecca for the kind of work I was doing. There was no no way I could have refused that position. It was just too good, but it's not what I'd planned. And so when the Max Planck Society gave me the job, I said, well, um, uh, um, uh, you know, I'm supposed to be coming on the 1st of January and whenever it was, 1989, I believe. What if what if I don't come on the first of January, but sort of come three months later? And um, can I spend the first three months of my job? They said sure. So they paid me. They paid me to the Max Planck Society. The Max Planck Society generously paid me to start my job, but accepted that I would spend the first three months in San, in Francisco. San Francisco. I just thought that was amazingly good, and you know that's it was wise. I learned a lot. And it was good for my job. It was, it was, you know, it was very impressive. So what did you learn in, in three months in San Francisco? That biochemistry, no, I mean, that biochemistry <laughs> might not be the best way. I learned biochemistry. I learned a lot. I mean, this was fantastic time. You know, the Pat O'Farrell himself is a huge inspiration. Then uh, Tim Mitchison, Mark Kirshner, all these people, you know, the cytoskeleton, which interested me. And I learned the thinking of that heavy-duty biochemistry. That was extremely useful. I wasn't successful. And, you know, I started on a path that I didn't pursue because then when I came to Tübingen, I learned heavy-duty genetics, which is what carried me through the next bit. But just getting that deep knowledge of how biochemistry contributes to understanding of development on cell biological processes, that was wonderful. The other thing I learned was living with not doing what the sort of mainstream stuff is. In what sense? Well, at the time, like I say, there were the biochemists, but it was very much, um, you know, it was it was the Kirshner and uh, it was cell cycle and it mostly. What I wanted to do was understand Drosophila gastrulation. And the other thing was that the, it was still in the clonogene and understand it period. And so if you didn't do either that, 
or that at UCSF. I mean, of course, there's also, you know, other people who were doing great stuff, transcription and so on, but I wasn't doing that. I was trying to look at the cytoskeleton and I was using mutants, dorsalized mutants, ventralized mutants, and labeling them and trying to see how the cytoskeleton is different. Not something anybody did. So when I told people that, their eyes would glaze over because I wasn't cloning an interesting gene or purifying interesting proteins from extracts that made spindles or whatever else do what they did. So when you when you went to Tubingen, you picked gastrulation as the main topic for your lab. Now you're a group leader, right? Up until yeah. now, we're, we're discussing you as a, as yeah, a PhD the, student, as mm-hmm. a trainee. But now you say, I'm, I'm going to start a group and the focus is going to be gastrulation. But that was already San Francisco. I knew I wanted to go into gastrulation because it was interesting. And because the genes I'd been looking at in Cambridge, their expression patterns and their molecular functions, namely cell adhesion, suggested that they were that they would be involved in gastrulation. And there had been papers to show that they were involved in gastrulation in frogs. And obviously the Drosophila system was going to be fantastic to look into this at a completely different level. Well, it turned out genetics showed they weren't. This was a beautiful collaboration with Ruth Lehman, where I began to latch on to genetics big time. So then I said, I'll, I'll find out. But I chose San Francisco for the biochemical way of finding out. But that's where I was going to go. And so when I went to Tübingen, I started talking to the people there. And they were, of course, died in the wool geneticists. You know, this was Janis, Janinus Leinfollhardt's lab. Above all, Siegfried Roth, they were geneticists. And so they said, well, very interesting, Maria. You know, nice. Yes, could be done. But look, they're mutants that don't gastrulate properly. Why don't you look at those? And so that's, that's what Tübingen did to me. And that's what really made the huge difference. At some point in the mid-90s, you said that you heard about some very intriguing results in zebrafish immunity and resistance to disease. They weren't really results. I think when I came to Tübingen, Yanni had already begun to think about using fish genetics, using zebrafish, to do a genetic screen to find out what kind of genes a loss-of-function screen like she did in flies would yield in the zebrafish, which she, of course, did eventually. So that was began to be done then and there. And she then had a brand new fish house built with, you know, thousands of tanks, of course, sterile and pristine on day one, which she populated with her mutant families, uh, which were wonderful, you know, absolute everything just so... Oh, and she used to um, select people for, you know, as student helpers, for instance, to do the tank cleaning or the fish feeding. You know, it needs a lot of attention. And she very cleverly chose students, undergraduates, who got paid some money to do this. And to be sure that she got people who cared about fish and knew about fish, she took people who have aquariums at home. Oh. Which... Nowadays, in other fish colonies, an absolute no-no. Oh, that's yeah. an interesting twist. Exactly, exactly. And so, like most fish colonies, this one too mm. got infected with tuberculosis. 
So it was a bring-your-own-pathogen situation. bring-your-own-pathogen ah, situation, right. But, you know, actually, mycobacterium is, is, is endemic in most fish colonies, and, or at least is, is very, very common. So this was a, just an opportunistic... Uh, yeah. my, uh, to, yes. It was marinum, I, I Yes, get, marinum, yeah. exactly. And so what happened, you know, this could happen anywhere, and most people would sort of say, oh, damn, I've got some sick fish here, got to deal with it. Yanni being a good scientist in the sense that she's a good observer, which I think is a completely undervaluated talent in, 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 in scientists. She noticed not just that the colony was sick. She noticed that there were significant differences in the sickness between different tanks. So some tanks, everybody was severely sick. The next door tank. What needs to be known for people who don't know how these fish tanks are kept is that the water flows into tank one and then through the entire system and out the end and is filtered and reintroduced. So you got one, you got something in one tank, you've got in all tanks. What she noticed was that neighboring tanks, sometimes one was completely healthy and the other one was completely sick. And then there were intermediates and some of them all fish were sick and some of them, let's say, for the sake of the argument, a quarter were sick. You know, again, somebody, someone else might have said, you know, some are sicker than others. But she immediately knew there had to be a genetic component because these were inbred families in each tank. It was not random. So she'd inadvertently done a screen for susceptibility to mycobacterium. And so, you know, she recognized that. And Jonathan and I, you know, we're good friends. And uh, she kept asking Jonathan, look, isn't this interesting? And he said, yes, yes, very interesting. Couldn't you ask some of your friends to follow this up? Wouldn't this be an interesting project? And Jonathan would talk to friends. But of course, nobody sort of switches from mouse to fish and doing a big genetic screen overnight. And so at the same time, I've been hearing this. I thought it was interesting. And I've been getting from prospective students sort of, oh, no, flies, oh, cell-shaped chains. Can't we do something that uses real animals? Can't we do something that's closer to something that one can apply for the benefit of man? So people no longer wanted to do fly genetics and gastrulation. They wanted to do disease and real animals. And so I thought, well, you know, if nobody else is doing it, why don't I do that screen? You know, I have a background in immunity. I have a background in genetics. So now you're an immunologist again in, in the mid-90s. Yeah, well. And and half of your lab that wanted to, as you said, work with real animals so that we get hate mail. It's always important to get hate mail in, yeah. in any kind of endeavor. But you kept the uh, the developmental biology and fly. Yeah, because well. at the time, you know, there was a there was also a little bit of I was, you know, the fly research was stalled and we weren't doing, you know, I branched out into looking at other cell types, these uh, respiratory cells, tracheal cells, which was fun. We did a lot of fun stuff there. But it was all, you know, the gastrulation stuff was really not going any further. I'd cloned a bunch of genes. It was hard to find out what they actually did. But then suddenly that took off again. And one of the genes we discovered led to really big new insights about how these cell-shaped changes in gastrulation work. So, you know, then there was bread and butter. That was then easy to get grants. And it was exciting because we'd made a big new step. And so we returned to it. And I think for people who don't work on flies, a source of some envy is that fly people seem to be the only people who have fun naming things. Oh, God, I can't stand it. Well, I can tell you one. I, uh, yes, you're talking about funny, silly games for fly names. Yes. 
I'll tell you one that I wasn't allowed to do. So I told you just now about getting into the respiratory system. This was because of a gene that was um, necessary for FGF signal transduction. And FGF signal transduction does two things in the early embryo that are very important. It sets up part of the mesoderm, which will make muscles and heart. Heart is important. And it sets up the tracheal system, which breathes. So the mutant for this gene had no heart and no lung. And so I decided to call it smoker. That was deemed tasteless and I wasn't allowed to do it. But I'm glad about that. Anyway, what were you going to ask? That was my silly name story. There are breathless and heartless, though. Yes, exactly. Game. Exactly. And this is a combination. This, so breathless and heartless are the FGF receptors. And this gene works downstream of two genes called breathless and heartless. I mean, that's smoker, isn't it? But, but when you, who did not allow, who, who is the gatekeeper in, in this? Uh, I think... Not necessarily I, anyone's name, but no, just who decides. I think my direct environment, my okay. co-authors. So, nah, come on. Philip Morris contributed to yeah. this. <laughs> yes, no. yes, yes. I could have called it Smoker and then gone to Philip Morris and asked for funding for the next 10 years. No, didn't. And who came up with Tribbles? Ah, yes. That was a graduate student. An extremely original and wonderful graduate student, Tomasia. I guess he was a... Captain Kirk fan. And now that things are going full steam, just to get where to where we are now, suddenly you get drafted to come to Heidelberg, mm -hmm. to EMBO. But that also means splitting your lab in two. Right? Yes. Just to be clear, you kept a lab in Cologne uh, and you opened a lab at the MBL. Did you separate the topics between the labs? Well, I had wanted to keep the fish in Cologne because that's where I had a fish facility and, you know, there were people working on fish there and fish colleagues. Not that there weren't good fish people here in Heidelberg and there was a good fish facility here, but that's how I wanted to do it and take the fly stuff mostly here, a little bit so. But I had a husband and wife team of postdocs in the lab where she was the fish person and he was a fly person and they'd just had as PhD students they'd had a long distance relationship and they said no more long distance relationship so they both wanted to come to Heidelberg and so I never split it stupidly but that's how that's how it went. EMBO was founded in 1964 by a group of prominent molecular biologists which included Max Perutz, John Kendrew, François Jacquard and Sidney Brenner. They also had the support and encouragement of one of the 20th century's most intriguing scientists, physicist Leo Szilard. The seed funding for EMBO was provided by the Volkswagen Foundation, which gave 2,748,000 Deutschmarks to cover the first three years' expenses. EMBO's mission is, quote, to promote molecular biology in Europe and neighboring countries by fostering talents, disseminating new ideas and knowledge among European scientists, and by encouraging cross-boundary collaborations. End quote. In 1969, the European Molecular Biology Conference was established. The EMBC is an intergovernmental organization which has provided EMBO's core funding since then. It currently comprises 30 member states, including some that are not EU members, such as Israel, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. More recently, EMBC delegates expressed specific concerns with the distribution of EMBO program beneficiaries throughout their different member states. They listen 
they hear proposals. Last budget negotiation was a special case because we had to get a lot of extra funds to be able to convert postdoctoral fellowships from fellowships, stipends, to full contracts, uh, which are more expensive than fellowships, obviously, because you pay tax and social security, etc. They all approved that, but the postdocs aren't evenly spread across Europe. They go preferentially to those countries that have, you know, big, strong science centers like Cambridge or, or France, the Pasteur or Austria gets loads of postdocs, uh, Germany too. So that's, that did feel a bit imbalanced that everybody had to pay more money, but this was mostly for the benefit of some countries. And so it was agreed that we try and balance this in other ways. And so together with delegates from the EMBC, we actually came up with a set of activities that are aimed to sort of stimulate those countries that uh, participate less to participate more and, and find means for them to do that. And so before we go into the details of that, just to make also be clear to people, um, there is also the EMBO Council, right? Yes. What's, what's their role in, in the governance process? EMBO Council is really what owns EMBO. The EMBO Council uh, sets strategy. The EMBO director is basically only their executive arm. So really the chair of council is the head of EMBO. And uh, the director does what council tells her. Now, of course, it's not quite like that in practice. It could be like that. The, the governance structure is perfectly clear that that's how it could be. In fact, council also listens to what we do and listens to our proposals on activities, on necessary changes, on ideas. They also approve um, our budget because EMBO has income not only from the EMBC, but also from other sources, like, for example, journals, or like the non-EMBC countries that are associated. That goes into a different pot. And the budget of that money is approved by council. So again, the director has to report. We, and I, when I say we, I mean myself and the management team, so the heads of the programs and our communications guys, finance, etc. We make proposals to council and then council discusses them and either sends it back to the drawing board to change our proposals or accepts them as they are. And, and who elects the council? The members. The council? That's Embo members. EMBO members. members, yes. In a Free, fair, and open election. Free, fair, and open election, yes. EMBO has announced a series of initiatives to foster increasing participation over the next three years for scientists in nine EMBC member states. Croatia, Czech Republic, Estonia, Italy, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Poland, Slovenia, and Turkey. Five new postdoctoral fellowships will be reserved for applicants who intend to work in one of the nine countries, and all eligible applicants to work in these countries will be interviewed. EMBO Advanced Collaboration Grants will fund visits by group leaders of the nine countries to develop projects or prepare joint grant proposals with colleagues in other EMBC member states. EMBO Lecture Courses will provide funding for graduate student and postdoc training courses. EMBO Lecture Series will provide funding to invite EMBO members and young investigators to lecture at participating countries. Other member states can apply to the MBC to be included in these initiatives. In 2021, EMBO launched a pilot project for early career researchers, the New Ventures Fellowship, established in memory of Suzanne Eaton. 
As EMBO's head of fellowship programs, Kelly Sheehan Rooney put it, the goal is to support high-quality candidates to explore feasible projects in fields outside their own area of expertise and generate the preliminary data that could help transform their research trajectory. This particular project is not funded from either the journals or from any other income that, that, that EMBO has. This isn't even EMBO money. This is money from a fund that was established by Eli Tanaka, Ruth Lehmann, Anne Klassen, in memory of Suzanne Eaton. And it's just donations from the community to honor Suzanne. It's that money that we then, that was given to us to do something useful with in the interest of the community. And because of Suzanne's you know, sort of multidisciplinary interests, we decided that was a good thing. That was a good way to honor her. That's why we did it. So it, it, just to be clear that this is really money from the community, it's donations. It's heartwarming to see all that money come in and that dedication to to such a wonderful scientist, and also the trust put an embo to do something useful with it, which is what it turns out we seem to have done. That's why we want to continue it. So I just wanted to clarify that. We've asked, um, we've reported, we've presented this to council with a suggestion to continue this because of the positive feedback, and council agreed. And so we will now take this agreement and to, to EMBC and propose to use some of our money that goes for uh, the regular scientific exchange uh, grants. These are, you know, small grants for up to three months, I believe. So they're just exchanges. And this is very similar, of course. It allows a person to spend time in somebody else's lab for a while. So we've just asked to use some of that money. That'll go to EMBC in November, and we're hoping they will approve it. Unlike the move to EMBO, which triggered a binary fission of the leptin lab into one lab at the University of Cologne and another at the EMBL Heidelberg, the ERC presidency will ultimately not be compatible with the maintenance of an active research program. And now, unfortunately, in this next move, you're you're going to close your labs. Mm. What's the outstanding question that you wish you could still address if you if you didn't have to take a full-time job in in well in one, a of them, facility? one of them is i mean in flies it's in anything. it's it's big it's but they in in fish it may seem small but you know we've been working on this molecule called ask which is the adapter that links caspase to the to the inflammasome and it's the most amazing protein. It's present in the cell at very high abundance. It really, it's, the cell is packed full. When that protein dimerizes, it triggers a formation of so-called speck, which is a speck, you see it in fluorescent imaging. It's a, it's a big blob that sucks up all the protein, the entire protein in the cell, as far as one can see. It just sucks it all up. It never, does it spontaneously. But when it does it, it's within seconds, one speck in the entire cell. Why? What keeps it from doing it spontaneously? If you use a, a GFP-labeled form that we made um, integrated into the you know, endogenously tagged version of it, that for some reason does it spontaneously. 
We don't know why. It's not the GFP. We don't know why. It's not the amount. So in some cases it does it. It doesn't do it when we use an, uh, now this is unpublished work, an optogenetically, um, so an OLIG2 containing GFP fact, that doesn't do it. RFP doesn't do it. I mean, RFP does it. We don't have an RFP independent. Anyway, there's a huge problem, you know, and the important thing about this is when a speck is formed, the cell's dead within seconds. So you've got you know, you, you're sitting on unlit explosive as a cell all the time and the explosive doesn't light until something comes that triggers inflammasome uh, activation and then it goes boom, completely unknown. The biochemistry of this is mysterious. So if I went to do a postdoc, that's what I would look at. And we've had ideas, hints, but only a young undergraduate who's now in the lab right now has ever been interested in this problem. Nobody else in the past who's worked on this was interested in that question. Well, farewell question. And then in, in Drosophila, of course, I would like to understand, do we really understand all the rules of gastrulation? We understand so much. We understand the cell biology. We understand the genetics. We understand some of the physics. But do we have the whole logic together? But that would be another 10 years. 